Uh, if you'd open your Bibles to Genesis uh, chapter 37, uh, we're cruising along in our series, Jesus the True and Better. Since second grade, uh, all the way through high school, I played, I grew up playing basketball. So I played on uh, various uh, school teams and rec teams, and that was just a part of my life for a long time. Um, I s still play to this day, a couple times a week, trying to relive my former glory. It's not pretty. You know, whoever's guarding me is thinking, this guy sweats a lot, a lot. It's really not, not good, but uh, it's good for me to go out and sweat, even though it's not fun for the person guarding me. But growing up, I would end up going to practice uh, several days a week, and we would go through numerous drills, like the three-man weave, or the three-on-two, two-on-one fast break. That was my favorite. I liked that one. Uh, we would run through our offense uh, without a defense. We would just go through the motions and pass the ball quickly and just do it over and over and over again to ingrain it in us. And then at the end of practice, that's when we would shoot our free throws. And uh, we would basically, this is when you're tired, when your legs are shot because you've been practicing so hard. And, and now you've got to learn to make shots when it counts. We'd go through our repetitions. I had a particular routine, spin the ball, dribble three times, spin the ball, shoot the ball. And for guards, we couldn't leave practice until we made 10 in a row. Uh, uh, big guys, they didn't expect to shoot as well, five in a row. And that's what you had to do to leave practice. So that's what I, I sort of grew up doing. And practicing like this, whether it's the, the weave or the fast break drill or going through your offense or shooting free throws, this, the whole idea behind this is to create basketball instincts and muscle memory so that under pressure in the game, you do it intuitively. You intuitively do the right things when the pressure is on and you don't have to stop and think about it. Um, so you'll shoot, at the end of a game, you'll shoot your free throws with confidence. In the game, you'll naturally move to open space without the ball because it's been drilled into you, that instinct. You'll anticipate the passing lanes because you've practiced your fast break, you've practiced your offense. Uh, the instinct and the muscle memory guide you because it's been rehearsed. And it almost seems like God is using that same kind of training strategy, rehearsal strategy, practicing, as we see the progressive revelation of Scripture develop as we go from Old to New Testament. And as we see this, God puts types, what we call Old Testament types, figures, features, key institutions, all which anticipate and point us to Jesus. And so these types are a kind of rehearsal where God is drilling into his people gospel instincts, theological memory, and a natural disposition such that we would recognize and respond to the Savior because of all of these types that have come before. And so the type that we're looking at today uh, is Joseph, uh, the figure Joseph. So again, if you've got your Bibles, open to uh, Genesis 37. And when I say Joseph, I mean Joseph the dreamer, right? Joseph, the favorite son of his father, Jacob, who is also known in this passage as Israel. Joseph, who was given the fancy coat by his doting dad, right? Joseph, whose steady barrage of trouble in life turned out to be uh, turned out to strategically place him as God's agent in a time of trouble. So first of all here, 
And I will give you this little preface too. Hopefully you've got this figured out by now. We're going to spend the most of our time in the first five points. And then when we get to the second five, you know, we're going to get those in a minute or less. So when you see me at 25 minutes, only on point five, don't panic. It's all okay. All right. I've allotted for that. So our first point, Joseph was beloved, which created jealousy among his brothers. Genesis 37.3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. I have to read that with a little attitude. That's the only way I can see that particular passage. Near, right, yeah. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. So I'm going to start out with this. I'm with the brothers on this one. I'm not a big fan of young Joseph here. He seems to be a bit of a punk. He's getting away with an awful lot with his brothers here, and I can see why they're irritated. His brothers are out working, and seemingly he shows up a little late. And he shows up with this coat from dad. And I don't know, in my mind's eye, I see Joseph sort of twirling into the area. Look what daddy gave me, you know. (laughs) They're already ticked off about the coat. Now he's going to add insult to injury. Let me tell you about this self-serving, self-important dream. Um... Joseph's a punk. I I don't like this young guy here. You ever notice uh, yourself not liking somebody really just because life seems to be going a little too well for them? Nobody? (laughs) I, I feel that way at times. Things are just going too good. This person is good looking, got a full head of hair. This person's well liked. They're well-employed. They take better vacations than you do. They catch more fish than you do, and bigger ones at that. And then they have the gall to show it to you on social media. I don't like them, right? We feel that way. I'm dating myself here, but uh, how many of you remember that 80s shampoo commercial? Don't hate me because I'm beautiful. Do you remember this, some of you? First service was like, huh? So I don't know, there's maybe a demographic change between first and second service here. (laughs) It's interesting to me how this story is presented to us because the reader is immediately repelled by Joseph. We don't like him. We're naturally resistant to him in our hearts and minds. If he's the protagonist of the story, we don't yet identify with him. We identify with the brothers. This guy's too big for his britches. And it seems like Scripture presents him as someone who's just a little too much for his own good. And yet, while we're not initially enamored by him, we are meant to follow his story. We sort of have to follow his story. That brings us to our second point. Joseph was betrayed for money and handed over to captors. 
uh, verse 19 of chapter 37. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Which at first sounds like, oh good, a reasonable guy. He seems nice and compassionate. That's nice. Then he goes on. Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. Okay, well. And not lay, a hand, and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. So as we continue on in our story here, what we find, the reader is sort of presented with a bit of a tension. On the one hand, Joseph is the favorite son, favorite one in the family. We're made aware of this dream. And dreams, particularly in the Old Testament, were a common way that God would reveal his plan and purpose to somebody. And yet these dreams find immediate resistance or an immediate obstacle. And it sort of feels like the plot is going off the rails here. Now, I want to take a little bit of a detour here and talk about dreams and visions uh, for just a second and sort of the difference between now and then on, on this subject. Uh, one of the reasons that dreams were so significant in the Old Testament, or the left side of our Bible as we've been calling it, even actually up until you know, the first century of the New, um, one of the reasons they were so significant is because of the limited revelation that God's people possessed. Okay? Joseph has no Bible. He does not have a page or a scrap or an excerpt of Scripture. So one's knowledge of knowledge, one's knowledge of God at this point in time would be by direct encounter with the Lord, would be by dream or vision uh, or what we've called a theophany like we saw last week, sort of a, a manifestation of God uh, in a sort of human-like form where the angel of the Lord appeared to people. Last week we saw the angel of the Lord appear to Abraham. And so this was... This was the way that one interacted with God. This is what they knew of God and how they heard from him. This should not be our expectation now. Uh, now that we have the complete revelation of Scripture, Scripture is our guide. It is the authority that we turn to. What the Scripture says, God says. And well, I'll just say this. While God could speak to, uh, through dreams and visions, he, he could do that. I don't know that he's necessarily retired from that, but he could do that. We have to say that any dream, any vision, anyone might uh, profess to have must be subservient to and in agreement with the scriptures because God will not contradict himself. And so that is the way we guard ourselves from error either on our own or guard ourselves from getting sucked into somebody else's is trapped. The scripture is our objective guide. It is the primary way that we hear from God. Or let me say it a little, a little punchier. Dreams and visions are not necessary where God's word is known. Dreams and visions are not necessary where God's word is known. And I think what drives a lot of people to dreams and visions is this desire, this hunger to have this direct encounter with the Lord. And I simply want to tell them, if you want to have a more encounter with the Lord, if you want to have a more dynamic and intimate relationship with Him, then truthfully set aside time to be in His Word, His revealed Word. And know that the Holy Spirit of God who is in you 
will bring to mind and illuminate the truths that are there. That is his intention for you. So as we know, Joseph, he just didn't have what we have. And I think it's worth pausing and considering the privilege that you and I live in with the revelation that we have. We have the written word of God. Even more than that, we have the living word of God. We saw the scripture and God's revelation in the written word fleshed out in Jesus. Even more than that, we have the very Holy Spirit of God. If we're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God indwells us, instructs us, illuminates the scriptures to us, convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit is not the JV member of the Godhead. He is co-equal with the Father and the Son and the same Holy Spirit that indwells you and dwells me. And he uses the scripture, illuminating it for our lives. I just want to say this, friends, we are incredibly privileged to have the revelation that we have. And I would dare say that Old Testament saints, if given a choice, an occasional encounter, direct encounter or a theophany, versus the regular access to the revelation of God written, lived out in Christ, and illuminated by the Holy Spirit constantly, I dare say they would easily change places with us. So, again, the reader in Joseph's story is kind of brought to attention here. A dream has been given in a time where that mode of revelation was particularly valid, but the dreamer is rejected and betrayed and sold off to merchants. So, we're sort of facing this tension. How will the plot move forward? How will God make good on his revealed plans when his, when his supposed agent is taken into captivity? And so as the story goes on in Genesis, what we find actually is that the story gets worse before it gets better. Joseph will endure injustice after injustice, but in the midst of it, there is a, hu- a hidden beauty that God is authoring, that God is writing. This brings us to our third point here. The injustice that Joseph endures turns out to be God's providence for good. Uh, Joseph's story covers a a wide swath of scripture, and I don't have time to hit the whole thing, and so we're just going to do a few bullet points to move us forward in this. To talk about some of the injustice that he would endure, if you're familiar with this story, you know this. But instead of enjoying this status as beloved son in the family here, he gets shipped off and ends up becoming a lowly servant somewhere else in Potiphar's house. He's a man there of impeccable character, and yet he's falsely accused and punished. And even though he's innocent of his accusation, he will suffer for years imprisoned. And so this God-given dream seems a long way from reality, right? That's what we would have to say. But our God is a God of manifold wisdom, bringing together all kinds of various plot points into the central control of his sovereignty. Our God is one who knows the end from the beginning. Our God is one who is as skilled with injustice as he is with blessing. Our God is capable, is as capable with the darkness as he is the light. He can take away any and every circumstance and make it serve his purposes. 
Even the enemies of God are unwittingly accomplishing God's purposes. And that is the nature of things. Understand that our God is not just a spectator in human history. He is an author. He is bringing all things to its desired ends. And so here in the midst of all of this injustice and this false accusation, the incarceration, the dark moment, one of the beautiful things of Joseph's story is that God is still writing a great story of beauty, of beauty. And in this one, we get to see behind the scenes. In our lives, we don't always get to see behind the curtain. We just feel the things, and we don't know what God is doing. But here, it's like God lifts the veil and says, let me just show you what I'm up to in Joseph's life. And so, what would happen here? What ends up happening? Joseph is released from the dungeon. God allows him to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. He releases him. He finds his way to the right hand of Pharaoh, second in command in Egypt, powerful, and we see God has worked all things together here to, to strategically place him for a rescue. Because who should come to Egypt? Who should come to Egypt? But his menacing and betraying brothers. Looking for food in a time of famine. So here's what's inter interesting to me. Here's what we don't find in this story or in this text. Ready for this? Here's a little fiction from Eric. Here's what we don't find. Ha! Told you so. I told you so. You remember my dream now, right? My sheaf rose up. Yours all bowed down to me. Let's see it. Let's have it right now. Look at all of this grain that I've amassed around me. I'm well fed. I'm well prepared. I've got plenty. And you turkeys... You guys threw me in a pit. And you took my coat, my favorite coat. You took it. I like a good coat, by the way, so that part's particularly offensive to me. You lied to my dad. You sold me out of the family. You made me go work for Potiphar. And not only that, his crazy wife, she's a head case. She's a problem. I was thrown in a dungeon. All because of your jealousy I endured years of suffering, and now you boneheads have showed up. You want some food. That's, that's what's not in the story. If this story were written about Eric and his colorful coat, right, that's what would be in the story. I'm just saying that's how I would have responded. But instead, from Joseph, we find some of the most striking words, really, in all of the Scripture, and it begins with this question, which I think is really helpful for us. He says this in chapter 50, verse 19. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? I think that is an incredibly helpful question, helpful question for you and me to consider when revenge is in front of us, when the opportunity for retribution is right here when we have an opportunity to repay for evil for evil, when we have an opportunity to do unto others as they did unto us. I'll tell you a little story about our family here, one of our family members. Well, it was my son, Aiden. He's not here this service, so we'll just lay it out there. When he was a little guy, uh, we saw him kind of turn around and do something nasty to his sister, some act of retribution. And we were like, hey, why did you do that? And he came back with this. I just did unto her as she did unto me. 
we were like, that's not how the golden rule works. It might be how we want it to work, but that's not how that works. And so we corrected that. Um, but I think that's how we still live. We still want it to work that way. Oh, you did this to me. Well, now here's my chance. And so when we get our chance to stand up over our adversary smugly and show them how the air of their ways has showed up and chickens have come home to roost, so to speak, may we instead ask Joseph's question. Am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? Is it my business to judge you, to tell you I told you so, to pay retribution to you, to inflict harm on you? And the grace of this question where he takes stock of his real position in this world under God, this grace extends even further. And he says, again, some of these most memorable words in all of Scripture, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. God was at work the whole time. We see this and we ought not think Joseph, what a good guy. What we should think is Joseph was a God guy. The ability to have a perspective that God was at work, even in what looked like something else completely. What does come out of Joseph because of his God perspective is grace upon grace. He extends grace to his brothers, and he is able to see not just their sin, but beyond it, to the fact that the providence of God was at work even through it. He's able to look beyond their sin against him and still willing to provide for their needs. That is grace, friends. And with grace, he's even able to speak kindly to them. I don't know about you, but sometimes that's the hardest part. Sometimes I just don't want to speak to them. But he's able to speak kindly to those who harmed him most. That brings us to our fourth point. Though wronged, Joseph forgave his transgressors. He forgave them. So this next passage, this is a chapter 50, verse 15. It backs us up just a little bit. And what it shows is it shows the continual conniving nature of his brothers. Joseph doesn't forgive them because they got it all meted out right or because they've corrected their ways. His forgiveness is extended to them in the midst of their conniving. Watch this, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, uh, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they have committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants uh, of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. I interesting verse there, yeah? Joseph wept. You see an echo between Old and New Testament again? And this passage seems to indicate that Joseph sees right through their conniving. He knows what they're up to. He gets their posturing. And he seems genuinely hurt that they would do this. Again, hurt again. He sees their manipul manipulation in this situation, and he's genuinely hurt. So I can't help but to think about this. Joseph wept, and Jesus wept in the New Testament, and see that we're, we're meant to see a tie between the two. These are both human beings, persons 
with a full array of feelings and emotions such that they're even able to be hurt. But Joseph's weeping and his disappointment with his brothers and sort of this personal pain from their treachery doesn't prevent him from offering full and robust forgiveness. A forgiveness that's not just stated, but demonstrated in robust action and heartfelt action. That brings us to our fifth point here. Ultimately, Joseph uses his power to save others. Verse 21. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. It's one verse. That verse is loaded. It's absolutely loaded. I'll provide for you and your children. He reassured them and he spoke kindly to them. These are clear signs of Joseph's full forgiveness of his brothers because of the way that he treats them. I think this is a pretty good grid through which to look at some of our forgiveness that we extend or maybe fail to extend to others. I think it's too easy for us, and when we say, oh yeah, I've forgiven so-and-so, simply because we muttered the words, I forgive you. And I think it's too easy to just limit and manage our encounters with other people. Well, we muttered the words, I forgive you, I'll just never have anything to do with you again. Avoidance of a person oftentimes is just a way to evade our spiritual responsibility of love to our brother or sister. And I think what we see here is that real forgiveness is not passive but active. It shows up not just in our words, not just in our heart, but also in our actions towards one another. And when we see this on display in Joseph's life here, we go, wow, that's really incredible that he would have that posture towards those who hurt him and that he would be willing to do those things for them. But we see this on display in an even greater way in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true and better Joseph. And so we see some of these same plot points, right? Here comes the back five. Because Jesus was beloved by the crowds, the religious leaders were jealous. Therefore, Jesus was betrayed for money and handed over to captors. In his case, it wasn't 20 shekels of silver, but 30 pieces of silver, another echo. And yet, the injustice that Jesus endured, it turned out to be God's very providence for our good. Even though he was wronged, Jesus forgave his transgressors, right? In fact, right from the cross, in the midst of the action, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then finally, Jesus ultimately uses his power to save others. So we can easily identify some of these plot points that cause Joseph's story to point us to and prepare us for Jesus and, and his ministry. And what I want to do is just dial in on two of these that I think have real practical implication for us in the here and now. And the first one is this. I think we learn both from Joseph and for Jesus to have confidence in the sovereignty of God, to trust that he is absolutely, even in the midst of evil, still in control, still in control. And I don't know about you, but I really need this right now. I need to believe this right now. I need to be reminded of this right now. 
Because the pressures just keep mounting, don't they? The war in Ukraine, still on, right? Mass shooting again. Loved ones, even in the past couple weeks, taken from us too soon. And it seems like there has been more than normal lately. Leaders who fail us. Reports of rampant abuse in the church, locally and nationally. We look around and we look at the church in the world, we look at Christians in the world, and we look at the world in general, and it all just looks like it's unraveling, right? Maybe you don't see the global things. Maybe it's just the simple day-to-day things. You go to the grocery store. How much is an avocado right now? How much is a gallon of gas? It's going to be how long until you get the part for my car? Things are frustrating right now, and it feels like things are totally out of control. But this passage reminds us that our God is one with manifold wisdom, bringing all things together to the point of his sovereign control. Our God is one who knows the end from the beginning. He is one who is as skilled with injustice as he is with blessing. He is as capable with the darkness as he is the light. He can take any and every circumstance and make it serve his purposes. Even the enemies of God are unwitting accomplices in his plan. So that's the first thing that we, we draw from this passage. We're reminded of and thank God for that. He is sovereign. Secondly, Christians are to be a forgiving people. We're to be a forgiving people. Um, I think it's true that, and it's, it's almost too small to say it, forgiveness is some of the hardest work that we do. It means that somebody really ticked you off. They really hurt you. They really harmed you. You feel the pain. You feel it. It is some of the hardest work that we do. But I love what C.S. Lewis says, to be Christian means to forgive the inexcusable in others because God has forgiven the inexcusable in us. That is very helpful. I want you to think about it this way too. Forgiveness is something that anyone can do, right? Anyone can do that. Forgiveness is something that everyone should do, even just for their own good, just for their self. When you live in a place of unforgiveness and you continue to hold this out there, it becomes a lens through which you live with others and you continue to, to re-wound yourself and others. Forgiveness is just good even just for us. So it's something that anyone can do. It's something that anyone should do. But it is something that Christians must do. And here's three reasons why. Number one, because of what we have experienced from God on our behalf. God has forgiven us. He's forgiven us. Secondly, because forgiveness is good for us as it is for the other person, as we just talked about, when you withhold forgiveness, you harm yourself and you continue to harm the other person. But you continue to harm yourself. But thirdly, and hear this, because of what we know of God, all sin will be judged and punished, either in one of two places. Either it has been judged and punished in Jesus at the cross, or it will be judged and punished one day when the Lord reigns supremely and rightly. 
But it will be judged and punished in one of those two places, which means that the Christian lives in this world with assurance of these two realities and is let off the hook. I don't have to punish you. I don't have to exercise retribution over you. I can forgive you knowing that God has already dealt with it, either in Christ at the cross or your day is coming with him. That equips me to let go of this peace, to not seek the pound of flesh and retribution, but to leave justice to the Lord who judges rightly. So we can come back to Joseph's great question. Am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? Either he will punish their sin then, or he already has in Christ. Tim Keller has said this, Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who is at the right hand of the king and forgives those who betrayed and sold him, and he uses his power to save us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these two stories, the Joseph story and the Jesus story, where you lift back the veil and you allow us to see that you are sovereignly working all things together for your ends, whether it looks that way or not. Lord, we live in this day. We live in this moment. We have this broken relationship, this hurt, this wound. We see what angers us and frustrates us in the now. Lord, may we, by faith, look at the precedents who have come before us, Joseph and the true and greater Jesus, who show us your sovereignty and that we are to be those who forgive others. Give us wisdom as we do this. It's not easy. It's nuanced and it's complicated. But we may, may we follow Christ who went before us. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.